Welcome back to The Bulwark Goes to Hollywood. My name is Sonny Bunch. Uh, I'm culture editor at The Bulwark, and I'm very pleased to be joined today by Sean Ryan. Uh, now, Mr. Ryan is the creator of FX's revolutionary drama series, The Shield, uh, the two beautiful for this world terriers, both on FX. Uh, he co-created the unit with David Mamet. Uh, and developed SWAT with Aaron Thomas, both for CBS. And he is the showrunner on the forthcoming uh, Netflix series, The Night Agent, which is based on the novel by Matthew Quirk. Uh, but we're not here to talk about any of these shows exactly, though in a way we're here kind of to discuss all of them. Um, I asked Mr. Ryan, who uh, served on the Writers Guild of America's nego- negotiation committees in 2007, uh, 2011, 2014, 2017, and 2020, uh, to be here today to talk about the WGA negotiations over the years, uh, kind of of how the business of TV has evolved in ways that have hurt and helped writers, uh, and what he, as a producer uh, who has worked for cable, for broadcast, for streamers, all of them, basically, uh, thinks writers should know to work for more equitable treatment by the studios and the networks. Uh, So thank you for being here today, uh, Mr. Ryan. Really appreciate it. Uh, My pleasure, Sonny. So, uh, you know, the reason I reached out to you is because you you wrote a, a response letter to uh, Richard Rushfeld's The Ankler uh, producer, uh, or I'm sorry, it was an agent who was complaining about, you know, the, the way the writers had uh, behaved in 2008 and the negotiations headed into this, um, this forthcoming writer's... Uh, possibly writer strike, we'll see. Um, and I wanted to get your take as as somebody who's been in the room, not talking about any specifics. I don't want you to betray any confidences, but when when you guys are sitting down with the producers, you know, way back in 2008, what were you looking for? I, it can't be easily dismissed as some folks like to as more DVD money. That's that's not <laughs> that's not the case. What 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 did you guys get, and what were you? Uh, how did that kind of reshape the landscape of uh, of media? Sure. I would say that every negotiation, you start off with a laundry list of things you would like to get. Uh, if if specifics of that laundry list are leaked or discussed, um, there could be a mistake to think that they all hold equal weight. So there were a number of things that we were looking to improve upon um, when the 2007 negotiations started. Uh, but we knew what that negotiation was really about was jurisdiction of the internet. At that time, we had started to see repeats of shows that were aired on broadcast and cable shows started to be repeated uh, and and put up on, you know, abc.com, these sort of sites that would, that were the beginning of, hey, if you missed the show last night, here's a way to, to catch up. Uh, traditionally, the Guild has fought for and received residuals, meaning that when you write an episode of TV and that episode is reused in some way, whether it's foreign or in syndication or, uh, or a repeat on the original broadcast network, uh, there would be a set formula that would that would pay you a residual. These residuals were really important for writers' careers. It allowed writers to uh, survive between gigs, uh, and we saw that, that the future was that the internet was going to bring our programming uh, to people. We envisioned a time when something crazy like making programs for the internet <laughs> might might happen. And it wasn't too much later that, 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 that Netflix uh, stuck its neck out and, and started to create original programming. So we knew that that was the big thing, that we had jurisdiction 
over over television shows that were were made for broadcast and cable TV, and that it was important uh, that that any programming that was going to be reused on the internet or created for the internet be under our jurisdiction, that it would come with minimums uh, for payments for writers, that would come with residuals for writers when it when it was reused, uh, and that it would offer uh, you know pension and health contributions, uh, which are important to writers and that we have fought for successfully over the years. Uh, and that's what the strike, that was the, by far, the, the most important thing about the strike. And so, uh, listen, I, I wrote that rebuttal to the Anchor piece uh, because it, I think it came out either slightly before Christmas or slightly afterwards. And and frankly, I was bored and wasn't working during the holiday. <laughs> and, and, and I saw so many untruths in that piece by um, what was an anonymous agent. So I don't know who the agent was. I, subsequently, I have had a couple agents I know write me and say, that wasn't me, Sean. Uh <laughs> But I was I was just angry that there was in my mind and I and I've seen this claim bandied about by a couple other people that oh the strike was about DVD residuals, which is so stupid because DVDs were on their way out and these crazy writers they don't know what they're doing and that strike made no difference and all they did was lose money and now there's all this talk about a strike coming up and are these crazy writers going to shut the town down again and a narrative was beginning that that I rebelled against because I was in the room for all these negotiations I know what the strike was about in 2007 it was a strike that the companies chose we worked very hard to make a deal before there was a strike. The companies chose to see if they could own the internet without having to go through guild stuff. And it took a hundred day strike uh, to let them know that that wasn't worth it. And they finally struck a deal that was far closer to what our original proposals were than to what their original proposals were. And so what I was saying was it's impossible to calculate the gains from that strike. But imagine if you would, a world right now where every TV show that was made for Apple or Hulu or Netflix or Amazon or HBO Max uh, wasn't covered by the Guild, didn't contribute pension and health uh, contributions, came with no residuals at all. Everyone who says a strike didn't lead to anything isn't acknowledging that all those things that exist right now, and, I, and I'm not saying that, that we got everything we deserved or should have gotten. I, I wish that the residuals were higher on, uh, on these streaming shows, but, but I have to imagine that the gains total in the hundreds of millions of dollars uh, for writers over the past, what is it, 15 to 16 years now, uh, so, so that's what the strike was about that. I also believe, and this is just my own personal opinion, that that strike was less about a conflict between writers and companies and more an internal conflict between the companies themselves. You have to realize that there's an oligarchy happening here between five, six very powerful companies. And to think that they all completely agree on strategy with guilds, um, is is inaccurate in my point. So I think that there were companies like Fox um, that were more willing um, to uh, invite a strike 
to see what they might gain on the other side. And I think there were companies like CBS back then that was very reliant on written programming. You know, Fox at that point, if you remember, was very high, like an American Idol, Mm -hmm. had a lot of reality shows. They weren't as dependent on, on scripted material. And, you know, you have to have all those companies agree together on what these deals should be. So I would hear a lot that and and would see things in the room that made me believe that hey these companies don't necessarily agree they can't agree amongst themselves and that was one of the things that I think um, was uh, was a primary driver to the strike happening. You had a couple companies that wanted to invite a strike, yeah. so that that is my perspective as someone from the inside. I'm <clears throat> I'm sure that you could talk to someone else on the other side that would offer a different perspective, but that was my perspective from the inside, and that was our approach uh, from the Writers Guild that 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 our content was about to gravitate towards the internet. We saw it coming. We knew it was coming. We knew it was the future. And it was important to secure our future uh, on the internet. And I think history has proven us right. Yeah, I mean, it it really is crazy to look back uh, at 2007 and 2008 and think about the things that we don't have or or were kind of just on the horizon, right? I mean, at the time, you have iTunes, you know, publishing single episodes or seasons. You can pay per 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 stream basically or per per download um netflix streaming existed kind of but in a very modest form without you know it was pre-house of cards and all that it's still primarily a dvd by mail company um and hulu i think debuted either during the writer strike or like right we- after the weeks, writer's strike i believe it was weeks after the strike ended i think right. it was clearly something that was in motion that they were waiting to see what this group. So imagine a world in which we chose not to strike, did get that, and then suddenly the companies, which was at that point it was a cooperative effort, right. I think, between three networks, to start airing all the repeats. And yeah, they they had that in their quiver, and they waited till the negotiation was over to launch that. I I, I think if they had made a deal with us in November, you would have seen Hulu premiere in December. Mm-hmm. Because they made a deal with us in February 2008, it premiered slightly afterwards. I, I, I have a hard time believing that that's a coincidence. Yeah. Yeah. And, and let's can we can we can you explain to to listeners who are not in the business the difference between residuals for uh, you know, a repeat that airs on broadcast um, versus how it works in streaming. Because this is, whenever I talk to writers or, or agents and managers, the thing that they constantly hit on with me is, look, we can make a living on on money that we get from repeats on broadcast. We cannot mm-hmm. make a living uh, on something that streams in perpetuity that we're getting a $1,000 check every, you know, 12 months for. Or whatever it, it, the economics of it does seem to have like shifted pretty uh, strongly toward the studios and networks. Well, yeah, listen, I, I think there is something that that writers do have to acknowledge, and that is is that 30, 40 years ago there were fewer shows being made and fewer repeats, and those repeats generated bigger numbers. So let me give you an example. My very first show was on Nash Bridges. Um, I got engaged to my current wife. We're heading towards our 25th wedding anniversary this spring. Congratulations. Uh, thank you. Uh, you know, once again, dispelling the notion that Hollywood marriages don't last. Uh, I wrote an episode of Nash Bridges uh, back then. Uh, and this will sound like a lot of money, and it was. You have to keep in mind, though, that I, you know, 
I moved here to try to be a TV writer in 1990, and I got my first staff job in May of 1997. And I was living off like $11,000 a year, tutoring math to, you know, to have a living. But essentially, you'd make about $30,000 an episode to write an, an episode of TV. When an episode was repeated, I would get a check for about $16,000. Um, you know, so an episode, my very first episode aired on Halloween night, uh, 1997. And then let's say sometime in March, uh, they repeated that episode. Um, you know, the repeats would get a fairly decent number for the network, not as high as, as for a new episode. Uh, and, and generally, writers, actors, and directors would all get residuals for the repeats. Uh, my wife and I got married, and we paid for our wedding and honeymoon from a residual check. Our, our honeymoon and, and wedding cost about $16,000 back in 1998, and, and we were able to pay for that. Uh, when things are repeated now, uh, and you know, now I'm testing my memory because it's a, been a long time since since I heard the formulas. Uh, but basically, there's a period of time under which these shows stream that residuals aren't due because you're not doing one specific airing; you're making a show available for people to watch when they want to watch it. Uh, but there's a formula now for after a certain amount of time, some residual checks come in, but they they are far less. Than, uh, than, than what writers have made uh, in, in, in the past on residuals. Uh, in, in, in some part, I understand because there are fewer viewers for each individual episode being watched. But I, but I don't think we have um, the formula that, that we deserve for that. When you think about, uh, you, you, when you think about not only the revenue that these companies are generating, but, but their value. The value, the value of Disney Plus and HBO Max and Netflix and all these things, uh, despite uh, kind of current headwinds they're, they're facing, if you look back over the last three, four, five, you know, ten years in Netflix's case, they, they've generated extraordinary value. There's talk about how the tech industry has come into Hollywood. And, and so the thing I like to compare it to is we are inventors. Don't think of us as writers. Think of us as inventors. We are inventing products that these tech companies are using to, to build multi-billion dollar businesses upon, for whom those businesses won't exist without the work that writers do. And that's not just creators of programs like myself that includes all the writers on staff who are who are inventing the episodes uh that people watch uh when i watch a show like shark tank i i see inventors of products um retaining huge percentages of those companies <laughs> Writer, writers don't own huge percentages of these companies we, we you know our time and sweat is invested uh in making these shows uh, and, and, and we just have too many writers now. And again, I'm not the prime example. I'm, I'm doing fine, right? The, the people at the top of the pyramid, uh, the, you know, the top end creators, 
who have the clout to negotiate decent contracts can. Where the Writers Guild concerns itself, we negotiate what is called an MBA, which stands for Minimum Basic Agreement. We don't negotiate what the maximums of writers can make. We negotiate what the base floor is going to be. And, and too many... Uh, younger writers, too many middle class writers are getting crunched in in today's uh, today's business, and 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 the bottoming out of these residuals is is one reason why. Uh, from your perspective, as a guy who has worked on uh, again shows on different you know kinds of networks, you broadcast cable. Yes. Uh, <clears throat> Uh, the streamer. What is what are what are the differences in the writers' rooms for you for these? I mean, I, I another thing I hear sometimes is that the the streamers have smaller writing writers' rooms. You know, they have these mini rooms. Um, they don't they don't uh, you know allow people to kind of move up the ladder like like folks used to on mm-hmm. uh, network shows or, or cable shows. What what is that like from from your from your POV? Well, I don't think that there was anything pernicious intended by the companies in the way that the business has evolved for them. But I do think there are a lot of bad things that have happened. So traditionally, when broadcast television dominated, there was a very set hiring period and that if you worked on a TV show, you were probably doing 22 to 26 episodes a year, depending if it was a drama or a comedy. You would be hired. Uh, the upfronts would happen in in early to mid May. The upfronts being when it's announced which shows are picked up for the following fall season. Uh, if you were already on a show and then that show was coming back and and you knew that they wanted you back, you probably had an option that brought you back. But essentially, people would work for ten months from May until late March, maybe early April. Uh, to make these 22 to 26 episodes of TV, you would get paid an episodic fee, X number of dollars per episodes produced. That work would usually be done over 45 weeks, let's call it. Um, You'd kind of have an imposed vacation for a month and a half or two from the end of the season until the next season began. If if you weren't retained on your show or if the show that you were on was canceled, you would know that, okay, this is the time of year that, that, that I'm gonna go out and interview uh, for a job. Um, and this was a very, uh, very decent to good living for a lot of writers as it should have been considering that they were creating the TV shows that, <clears throat> you know, that propped up these networks. Uh, the big the big change that has come from the streaming age is that they are making fewer episodes of television and are taking way longer to make those episodes of television, but often still want to pay an episodic fee um, for writer services, which which if if you understand math, as I did as a former math student, what you're really asking for is more time for the same money, which means that your time is less valuable than it was before. These programs are just as valuable (laughs) uh, to the companies that order them. But uh, I've talked to writers on the high end, showrunners, who uh, were paid an episodic fee to make eight, 10 episodes, and it took them a year and a half, took them 20 months to make. And when they did the math, they realized that they were essentially making story editor money, which to your listeners who don't understand, that's a title for for some lower level writers. 
And, and so it's been a way to diminish the value of writers' time. Uh, there are some uh, some agents and a lot of writers now are, are, are trying to do deals that uh, that pay by the week rather than the episode. And, and so that's sort of improving things. But for lower level writers, when you're staffed on a show, you're no longer staffed from May till till March. Uh, you might be doing a 10 week mini room. They oftentimes are smaller. Now, there are, there are a lot more shows than there used to be. So I do want to acknowledge that there are more employment opportunities that exist and more writers are employed, but, uh, but too many of those writers uh, aren't, aren't being compensated properly for their work and, and are finding it impossible to live in Los Angeles, which is a very expensive town, um, and essentially to make their year, to, to, to make their living. Uh, so you have these 13-week mini-rooms, these 20-week mini-rooms. You have a lot of writers doing work. And here's something that I think hurts all parties, all the way down to the viewers, because it, because it means the content is, isn't as good. There used to be a tradition of writers working on shows and really learning to produce their own episodes, which means that they were on staff as their show was being filmed. A lot of times writers would go to set, produce their episodes, they would see how things are filmed. They could be around, you know, while while the staff was writing episode 15, episode 10 was being edited, episode 16 was being prepped, episode 14 was being cast, and writers would see this process and, and most showrunners would allow the writers to participate in that process. And so you had writers learning essentially how to produce television, uh, how not just to write on the page, but how to bring those words from the page to life on screen. Now what is happening is that a lot of writers are doing their work. They're being sent away. They're no longer involved in production. That's all falling, falling on the showrunners. It's too much work for one person to do. It's affecting the quality of these shows. And you're not building up and training the next generation of showrunners. Uh, and that's going to lead to a lot of flawed productions, which is going to lose money for the companies. It's going to lead um, to, to people not being prepared. Uh, they might be great writers, but they're they're not being prepared to run these shows. Um, there are ways around that a little bit. I was able to, and thank you for plugging my new show, The Night Agent, pre premiering in March on Netflix. Um, I was very early in the process because I was aware of this trend, able early on to get money in the budget for, for at least some of the writers on the show to be able to continue on past the end of writing to produce their episodes because I think it's so important. Um, but but what you are seeing is less episodes being made over more time in a way that is unfairly straining the pocketbooks of writers and causing them to kind of have to constantly hop from job to job that you suddenly have to, well, now I have to be on staff of three different writer rooms in the course of one year to do it. Now, some people, uh, some cynics or, or people who disagree with me might counter with, hey, well, they're getting paid for the, the work they're doing. If they're only working for 15 or 20 weeks, then that's what they should get paid for. Okay, that's fair. You know, I understand that perspective, but you're trying to develop a professional class of writers that are available to make all this programming that, that these streamers and these networks want. And if there isn't a system in place for them to survive the fallow times 
when when a room isn't going. I'm not talking about, hey, these people have to make millions of dollars. I'm talking about people literally making a living, affording um, to house their families. Um, this is becoming harder and harder and harder for the middle class of WGA members um, to do. And, it, it, and, and it's all because the companies have chosen to change the business model in a way that helps their stock prices, but doesn't help the people uh, inventing the product that their business is based on. Yeah, I, I want to drill down on this just a little bit because I, I really think it's uh, it's it's one of the the, the more interesting complaints from uh, when when I hear about it because it is a it, re, it making TV shows really is a craft. I mean, people have to understand how a set runs, how you get from point A to point B. You know, how you get into the. It's like an apprenticeship. It's an apprenticeship right. in many ways. Well, could you could you just um, explain a little bit of what what uh, writers learn when they move out of the writers' room and onto the sets and, and to to the production area? Just like what they see and how they can uh, kind of help their careers. Sure, you you move from the theoretical to the practical, and this process was so important to me that there was an afternoon that that I essentially wrote a seven or eight page document that I now share with my writers. Um, called producing your episode, and it just lays out point by point what I want them to do uh, in in prep. Prep stands for the preparation. All the work we do before a show starts shooting has to do with production when a show is shooting, and then post production after the show is done shooting. But but we're we're editing and adding sound and and, and color and music and all that. Uh, so it's one thing to write a script and in one sentence say. Um, the German army decimates the Russian army, right? That's a very easy sentence to write. What does that actually mean on screen? Well, writers, when they're actually in the business of producing their episodes, will go and start talking to the costume designers. Well, you know, what year is this exactly? What kind of uniforms? Are these the best trained soldiers from the German army? Are these peasants on the Russian side who've, you know, uh, you're talking to the extras casting, you know, have these people eaten properly? Are they all kind of, you know, thin and worn out from war? Um, you're going to go and talk to the props people. What kind of weapons you know, do we want these, you know, people, you're going to talk to locations, you know, uh, is one army uphill, the other downhill? Are you looking for some sort of strategic advantage, you know, in the, in the picture? You're going to be talking with your director who's going to have an idea of how they want to film it, but they're going to have questions. Well, is there one soldier in particular that we want to be focusing on? You know, all these conversations, they take weeks and they take planning and, and you are educating the, the, the key people in your departments, um, to do all the right work so that the scene comes off flawlessly, hopefully. That's producing. That's working with your production team to make sure that what is on the page is going to come to life in, in the best possible way. Uh, it also has to do with actor relations. Your lead actor has a question on the day about, you know, am I thinking about, you know, my wife back home who's pregnant? You know, and and so am I afraid of dying here or is my you know patriotism just, you know, so tremendous that, that, that I'm blocking that? You know, I, I, I want to understand the motivation as I'm making this this charge that could lead to my death. Right. Mm -hmm. That's that's producing your episode in a way that 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 makes something that may be well written, makes it well filmed. 
And it's an extraordinarily underrated part of the process. Again, in my opinion, these are just opinions I've developed over the last 26 years of working in television. Uh, but I've worked on shows. I, listen, I'll just say, I think Nash Bridges was one. We had an extraordinary group of writers on that show. If you look, go and look back and see who was on that show. I left the show... Uh, Glenn Mazzara was on that show. Damon Lindelof was on that show after Glenn and I left. Like, like really extraordinary writers. In many ways, I don't think the production of the show lived up sometimes to the writing. I think on a show like The Shield, I, I was very proud of our scripts. I felt the production and the performances exceeded the quality of the scripts, uh, in large part because the writers were so involved in the production uh, and, and in the prep. So it's come to be something I, I, I truly believe in. And, and it's something that, that in this new business model that the companies have decided to pursue, where writers, hey, we're going to get these scripts out of these writers, and then the writers can all disappear. And we believe that these shows are magically going to be made uh, to their maximum effect. Uh, I, I just think isn't, uh, I think it's short-sighted, and I think it's a reason why with all these 500-plus shows you see on TV, so many of them don't seem to live up to their potential. Do you, uh, without, with, I, I don't want, I don't, I'm not asking for you to name any specific, you know, the shows that could go, but do you think there is, there is kind of too much TV right now? I, I, there is so much. I mean, I literally, I, I joked on, on Twitter the other day, but there's a show with Brian Cranston and Michael Stuhlberg, two of my favorite actors, uh, on Showtime that I just saw an ad for for the first time this weekend watching football games and it's in its second season and I'm like how I'm pro- professionally paid to do this sort of thing how do I not know that this exists I mean I I it is uh there is a a vast waste uh, a, not a vast wasteland a vast wealth and there's too much uh, it feels like sometimes well, you're not even including uh, the international shows that are starting to appear because I think a lot of other countries are getting better at making TV. I think we had a, yeah. you know, uh, excluding maybe uh, the UK, we had a near monopolistic lock on quality television for decades, and 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 now you're seeing a lot of countries really up their up their game in that regard. Uh, I don't know what the proper number is. It seems like a lot. I like you. We'll hear, oh, this show is great, and just in the back of my head going, well, I've been told that there are 10 shows that are great, and I certainly don't have time to, to watch them all. Uh, I, um, you know, I was talking recently with Carlton Cuse, my original boss in Nash Bridges. Um, he and John Ridley made a pretty extraordinary limited series for Apple called Five Days at Memorial, and and... You know, I I don't know how much it was publicized. I didn't see much, uh, and I don't know how many people watched it. And it certainly was something that that deserved to be watched. So I think there is. You know, I just got done saying that that maybe some of these productions aren't living up to their potential. I think the the inverse of that is I think there are a lot of really great shows that because of the glut of what's on aren't aren't getting the viewership uh, that they probably deserve. So I don't know what the right number is. I would not be surprised if there is a contraction coming in some ways, which which would be painful for a lot of craftsmen like writers, directors, and actors if there's less work. Uh, but maybe that's going to be what's required for 
um, for the economics to make more sense for the shows that survive. Again, you know, I want the companies to succeed. You know, you may be listening to me and say, well, Sean Ray hates these companies. I don't. <laughs> you know, I'm I'm a loyal employee of, of Sony Pictures Television. Um, they're great. They treat me well. I've, I have a show on CBS, an upcoming show on, on Netflix. And I want nothing more than for these companies to succeed. Uh, they will have to be the ones you know, to decide what the proper number of TV shows is for their, for their businesses to, um, to maximize their profits. All I'm saying is that when their profits are maximized, as they have been, you know, over uh, the years, um, you know, they've made, I, I looked up the number here because knowing that we could do it, now I need to find it. Um, uh, now I can't even find it. But it, it's, you know, almost, I think, a trillion dollars in profits this century uh, of the studios. Not quite. I don't want to overstate it. But um, And I have the number now. I can't find it. But hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars of profits. We want them to be profitable. And we want to have our fair share of those profits as writers. I think that is only fair. One last thing uh, that you mentioned that I, I uh, is another thing I do hear uh, from writers and others. Um, the lack of metrics, you, you know, you mentioned, you know, you know, it's hard to say who's watching, who's watching what, you know, how many people are, are really talking about this. It's frustrating for me as a critic, because I like to, I like to know kind of what the, the zeitgeist is, right? What, what folks are watching. And it, but it is, it is a big sea change in how, uh, how it has worked. I mean, w- you know, working at Nash Bridges, you knew what the ratings were, you knew what the demo was, yeah. you knew, you know, you had pretty good breakdowns from Nielsen. Um, moving to your new show on Netflix, you know, the amount of information you're going to get will be less. Um, uh, and I'm, I'm curious what you make of kind of how that changes, how you, how you do things and just, you know, the level of frustration, or maybe it takes a burden off your shoulders if it, if it doesn't, doesn't matter as much. Right. Real quick. I found the number, uh, the, the major studios made about a half, one half trillion dollars in profits, uh, over the last 20 plus years or so. Uh, listen, there's part of you that's glad that you don't live and die by the overnight ratings. Um, I've had shows that were successful that, that you'd look forward to seeing the ratings. You know, SWAT right now and CBS is doing pretty well consistently in the ratings. And so Saturday morning after a Friday night airing, hey, what are the ratings? <laughs> I've also, you know, created or worked on shows where you're dreading the ratings coming in. You're in week, you know, you're in week eight Terriers that you mentioned before. It was a show I'm very proud of that, that really had minuscule viewership, <laughs> you know, just pretty much nobody, you know, it, it, you kind of find, it sounded like, it felt like uh, that Lou Reed example that, that they talk about only 50,000 people bought Lou Reed albums, but they all created their own bands. So like, I, yeah, I, I may have butchered that quote, but, it feels like only 50,000 people watch Terriers, but the, but they all somehow work in the industry um, and, and mention it to me. Uh, I don't know how long these companies can go withholding this information. Once again, we're seeing um, a tech mindset come into it. But when a company like Netflix starts having an ad-supported tier, which they started in November... 
I have to imagine that they're going to be sharing some data. With I can't imagine that Colgate toothpaste is going to put ads and not be told how many people are watching those ads. Uh, so um, I, I, I do think that secrecy has been used um, to probably hide some information that and now I'm not just talking about Netflix. I'm just talking about all these companies. I, I think it's probably been used to kind of hide some lower viewership. And then I think it's probably been used to um, underpay people on their most successful shows. Mm. Uh, so it's, it's probably internally a good business model, but I, 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 I don't know how much longer it, it it can go on uh, the way the, the the business is is changing. Uh, I I probably when you know when the night agent premieres in March, we'll probably be very very curious. You know, are people watching it? You know, are you happy with how many people are watching it? Do you have a sense of where people are watching it in North America versus South America versus Europe? And I don't know how much information they'll they'll give to me about that. And I imagine that 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 will be a little frustrating. But 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 you kind of know what you're signing up for when you uh, when you sign up to do a Netflix series. You, you you know that they have the biggest reach in the world. You you know that they're very successful. Uh, uh, launching shows you've you know both existing shows like stranger things or wednesday which has done very well so you you know that there's an opportunity there that that may not exist yet at some of the other streamers um to to really kind of hit a home run with a mass audience and so i guess that's just the deal you make with yourself that they're going to um you know they're going to keep a lot of that information to yourself and 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 Maybe you'll make a second season and maybe you won't. Um, I can't say that it's ideal, but that's what it is. Yeah. Uh, I always like to close the show by asking if there's anything I should have asked. If you think there's anything folks should know that's about. That's so funny. I ask that question in interviews <laughs> with people. I say, what should I What should I have asked you that I didn't ask you? And, and oftentimes I get the best answers in interviews from people. Ah, um, see, I'm turning turning that. the tables on you. What, sh- what should I have asked? What, what should folks know about either... Well, WGA negotiations, anything. Yeah, uh, I, I think an important thing to understand um, is all this strike talk, I think I think the most generous way to describe it uh, is um, is unnecessary. I, I, I think I think the the most accurate way to describe it is preemptive propaganda. Um, I was at dinner uh, with an actor and a studio executive last week. The writer looked at, I'm sorry, the actor looked at me and said, why are the writers going to strike, Sean? And I was like, well, what writer has told you that we're going to strike? Well, no writers have said, but I said, I said, we haven't even made an offer to the studio. We, We, the Writers Guild, the studio hasn't even made an offer to us. So... The Writers Guild is a democratically elected institution uh, that is going to engage with its members. Um, They're going to put forward some proposals. They're going to share those proposals with members. They're going to get feedback from members. And then we'll present those proposals to the companies. 
the, the companies are not a democratically elected institution. They're, they're a, a, a group of, of very powerful um, corporations that may or may not have already decided what their strategy for these negotiations is going to be. What I do know is that every negotiation, they try very hard to paint the writers as crazy, strike-happy people so that if they give us a substandard offer that we don't take and there is a work stoppage, it's easy to blame us, the writers. So when you hear all this strike talk, what that tells me is that people at these companies believe that they're not going to make <laughs> a fair offer to writers um, and, and that they're expecting a strike but hoping to blame it on us. I don't know any writer who welcomes a strike. I don't know any writer. You know, we spend a lot of our time looking for work, trying to find work. Um, so the idea that that we're that that, that we on mass, just for the sake of of uh, some cause, want to be on strike is completely inaccurate. So I guess the question you should have asked is why is there all this strike talk and where is it coming from? It's not coming from writers. There are a lot of things that. Um, that we would like to adjust, I believe, in the upcoming negotiations. I say that as someone currently on the outside. I was on the inside before. I'm on the outside now. I'm looking forward to engaging with, um, as a member, with the negotiating committee and finding out what's you know what's worth fighting for. But all the strike talk right now is not coming from the writers. It's not coming from the Writers Guild. It's coming from the studios who... If they were to make a fair offer, there wouldn't be a strike. Now, obviously, the dispute comes in what is a fair offer. And this is what negotiations are all about. But if the companies are taking the position that there's going to be a strike, to me, that means we have no intention of making a fair offer. I don't know if that's true or not, but, but why all the strike talk before negotiations have even begun? They're not coming from writers. They're not coming from the Writers Guild. I encourage you to find one statement from Meredith Steam, the president of the WGA, or David Young, the executive director, talking about how writers are intending to go on strike. It's just not happening. Um, we hope that there is a fair and respectful negotiation that reflects the true value of the work that writers, the inventors of the product that makes billions of dollars for these companies, um, that reflects our value. I feel like writers have been undervalued um, by these companies in the past, and there are some things as this, as this business model has changed that needs to be rectified. And um, and if the companies sit down and with sit down in good faith and try to hammer out a fair deal for both sides, I know the writers well because I was part of that team that for the last five negotiations tried to hammer out um, a fair deal for both sides. So uh, so I hope there is no strike. I hope the companies uh, understand the true value of writers, and I, I hope the business is successful and healthy and, and can profit all from, um, from the studios to the actors, writers, directors who make it, to the crew members who work so hard on the show, down to the consumers who love the shows. Uh, I hope it's a win-win for everyone. 
Uh, and on that note, we'll sign off. Thank you, uh, Mr. Ryan, for being on the show. Really appreciate it. Uh, I might, uh, w- one of these days, I might get you back on. We're going to talk to Shield because I love one of my all-time favorites. It's great. I never, I never get tired of talking about it. It's, <laughs> it's hard when you, when you make your legacy show in your 30s and you know it's going to be uh, the lead in your obituary, but you kind of, <laughs> you kind of say, you know what? Proud of the show. Happy to talk about it whenever anyone wants to. Uh, my name is Sonny Bunch. I'm culture editor at The Bulwark. And we'll be back next week with another episode of The Bulwark Goes to Hollywood. See you guys then. Mm-hmm.